0: to be reading from God's word not from 1 Corinthians 15 which is the resurrection chapter but uh, the next two verses uh, 1 Corinthians 16 and uh, let me read the whole context verses 1 through 4 Now concerning the collection for the saints as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia so you must do also on the first day of the week let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you appoint by your letters I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me." Father, we thank you for your word and I pray that as we study it that our hearts would grow to appreciate the incredible a change that you brought in history through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pray that uh, we would not only be encouraged but that our hearts would grow in our ability to worship you, to love you, to serve you. And so I pray for your anointing upon my preaching and upon each one here who hears. In Jesus name, Amen. Well today is Resurrection Day on most church calendars. But the Puritans would point out that every single Sunday is Resurrection Day. In fact, the very change from the seventh-day Sabbath to the first-day Sabbath is the sign of something incredible that has happened. It's a powerful testimony, the fact that the Messiah has come and that He is risen. We're looking back to the resurrection of Jesus. And before we even look at the Sabbath as being a sign of the new covenant. I want to introduce the need for the sign by showing some of the uh, really magnificent changes that Christ's resurrection uh, introduced. Uh, Sometimes uh, people will ask me, so why is it that we worship on Sunday anyway? Doesn't the fourth commandment command us to worship on the seventh day? And yes it does for a very specific reason, and we'll look at that reason in a bit, But the Bible also commands us to uh, worship and gather together on the first day of the week for a very specific reason which we will uh, look at a little bit later on. But um, 1 Corinthians 15 makes a big point of stating that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the beginning of the new covenant kingdom that had been anticipated for 4,000 years. His resurrection is called the first fruits. It's the guarantee that he will make all things uh, new. Even heaven was a new thing for believers. You may not have realized that prior to Christ's resurrection, nobody had ever made it to heaven. People say, ah, but what about Elijah? Wasn't he caught up in the sky? Yes, he was... His body was caught up in the sky, but was later buried, just like Moses' body was buried, as Jude uh, indicates. But no one, no one's soul ever went to heaven until the resurrection of Jesus. Um, The the, uh, previous to Christ's uh, resurrection, saints went down into the heart of the earth, into a place called Sheol in the Old Testament, called Hades in the New Testament, and uh, Luke chapter 16 talks about both the saved uh, Lazarus as well as the rich man going down to Sheol. And they're in the same compar- uh, basic compartment, but there's Lower Sheol, which was a place of torment, Upper Sheol, which was paradise. And um, so prior to Christ's resurrection, um, Sheol was a provisional place of joy before God prepared heaven for us, but Jesus emptied out Sheol at the time of his resurrection and he took the saints to heaven with him. Prior to his resurrection, Jesus dogmatically states this, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. That's John three, verse 13. Prior to Christ's resurrection, no one had ever ascended to heaven. But Jesus says that that was soon about to change. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now paradise is in heaven. So that was one of the many profound changes that happened. We have a new home, uh, but believers also have a new center for worship. No longer is it the earthly temple, it's the heavenly temple. The earthly Jerusalem gives place to the heavenly Jerusalem. The resurrection ushered in a new priesthood, new covenant, new worship, new mediator. The church has been made into a new man composed of both Jew and Gentile, according to Ephesians 2.15. Unlike in the Old Testament, where very few people had spiritual gifts, every believer is given spiritual gifts in the New Testament because we're in the age of the Messiah. In fact, Scripture affirms that Christ is progressively making all things new, in the new covenant. Why? Because his resurrection was the first fruits that was the guarantee of a new heavens and a new earth. That's the trajectory toward which everything is heading on planet earth. And even the unchangeable things have something new about them. Let me just illustrate using one example. Even though God's moral law is unchangeable and is said to endure forever, there's still something new about it. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. But then John goes on to hasten to uh, make sure we don't have a mistake about this. He says, it's not as if that the new commandment is totally new information. He says in 1 John 2, 7, that the new commandment is really, quote, the old commandment, which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Well, if that's the case, where's the newness in it? And the newness is that we are to love as Christ loved us. In other words, for the first time in human history, we have a perfect exemplar, perfect example of a person, a human who has lived out God's law without any sin, without any uh, violation or mistake. And uh, Jesus now lives his law through us. He writes the law on our hearts. Uh, and he empowers us uh, for that. So Jesus said, Behold, I am making all things new. The resurrection of Jesus is not a peripheral doctrine. It is the hinge on the door, which is progressively closing out the old creation, is progressively bringing in uh, the new creation. It's the beginning of his kingdom. So what I want to talk about today is how the change of the Sabbath from the seventh day to the first day is a sign that all of this is true and um, by the end of this sermon I hope you begin to have a holy excitement and enthusiasm for the privilege of living in the era that we live in. Sunday Sabbath showcases a major transition. By the way, this is one of the reasons why the Puritans said that Easter celebration actually diminishes Uh, our understanding of the significance of this. I'm not sure they were correct on that. You don't have to agree with their view of whether it's lawful to celebrate it, but I think what they were up to is every single Sunday is incredibly special when you think about it, that this is a miracle that we are celebrating the Sabbath on the first day of the week. And, And the connection between these two chapters is not accidental. Chapter 15 is, is the largest exposition on the resurrection of Jesus, uh, as well as the application of what the significance of that is, and then the very next two verses, chapter 16 verses 1 through 2, is outlining uh, the sign of the covenant as being the first day uh, Sabbath. Um, Sabbath has always been a sign of the covenant. Exodus 31 verse 13 calls it an everlasting sign and Ezekiel 20 calls it the sign of the everlasting covenant. So whichever way you slice it it is something that's going to endure for all time but it is a part according to both the Old Testament and the New Testament of the new things of the new covenant. Now I think it's important to realize that the day keeping that is commanded in these two verses and it is a day keeping The daykeeping that's commanded here is in stark contrast to the daykeeping that is prohibited in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 is quite clear that even though it's okay to celebrate the Old Covenant days as an educational uh, matter, and Paul did that, he enjoyed uh, going to Pentecost, for example, um, it is not mandated it is not something by which your conscience can be judged. And so he says, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So he's talking about the old covenant Sabbaths are no longer something that can be binding upon your conscience. Uh, Paul enjoyed keeping Pentecost, but not as a mandate. And the moment you begin celebrating old covenant days, Paul indicates you are at that moment denying that Christ has come. You're denying the reality of the resurrection. Judaism is the whole context of Colossians 2. And besides that, there are many passages that indicate that Sabbath-keeping is going to endure right to the last uh, day of history. Uh, For example, Isaiah 66 prophesies that even though Jesus will make all things new in the New Covenant, including the Sabbath... There still is going to be Sabbath observance of some sort up until the last day of history. very last verse of Isaiah is the last day of history. And right prior to that, it predicts, and it shall come to pass that from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. So it's clearly indicating in New Covenant times there's going to be Sabbath the Sabbath observance by God's people. So what Colossians 2 is talking about is saying, hey, guys, don't ever be bound by the old covenant days. We now have a new covenant day keeping, and there's a reason for why this change has happened. Now this passage is one of several New Testament passages that mandate some form of daykeeping. And let me reread this text, the first two verses, and I'm going to give a literal translation of this that you will find in some of the older versions. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also, on the first day Sabbath, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come." Now that phrase, the first day of the week, is literally first day Sabbath. Okay, this is the authorization for changing, and there's many other scriptures, but this is one authorization for changing from seventh day to first day Sabbath observance. So the Greek is kata mion sabaton, first day Sabbath. And to understand how this is even possible I have put two key concepts into your outlines that I think you really need to understand. And the first key concept is that the Sabbath is both a moral law and a ceremonial law. It's both. Now some people have emphasized the ceremonial aspect of the Sabbath so much That they have said that it's completely done away with, but even if they were right, let's just assume for the sake of the argument that they were right—that the Sabbath was 100 percent a ceremonial law. They still could not say that it was done away with because even in the Old Testament, several times it is said to be an everlasting sign, an eternal sign. Just like the Passover uh, was eternal. Yes, there was a change to the Passover, but it came right over on into the Lord's table the Sabbath is also an everlasting sign. So even if you were to say it's not moral, it's only ceremonial, it still is something that endures forever. But um, in any case, I've given you some sample verses in your outline that show the Sabbath to be a moral law. Here's one way you can test it. If breaking the Sabbath is called a sin or is called evil in the New Covenant, then it is a moral principle. You say okay phil you just got yourself into trouble because there's no place in the new covenant that really commands that actually there's a number first corinthians 16 we'll, we'll look at that in a bit but let me give you one from isaiah 56. isaiah 56 1 through 8 speaks of a time in history when the ceremonial law has changed it's no longer binding the way it was in the old testament and it indicates that eunuchs are going to be able to be in God's house and foreigners are going to be able to dwell in God's house. That is not possible in the Old Testament. And so commentators said that by reversing this. See, in the Old Testament, a eunuch was not allowed to enter into the temple at all, and the foreigners could only get into the outer court. They couldn't get into the temple proper. So by reversing those two things, commentators have pointed out that this is clearly a New Covenant era passage. There is no time in the Old Testament when Isaiah 1 through eight could possibly be uh, dealing with, and yet in verse two, God blesses those in the New Covenant who keep his Sabbath, and he tells them, when you do that, you're avoiding evil, and then he goes on to say, you're keeping justice and righteousness. So by declaring Sabbath-breaking evil and by declaring Sabbath-keeping to be justice and righteousness, he's clearly saying it is a moral law, yes, even in the New Covenant. So that's one of the reasons why I say it's not just a ceremonial law. There are moral dimensions to it as well. And thus it's no surprise for Nehemiah to be telling Gentiles, who are total unbelievers, that they are doing evil by breaking the Sabbath. If it was just a ceremonial law, it wouldn't be binding on Gentiles at all. And yet he says, you are engaged in evil. This is a moral law. Why would it be binding on Gentiles? Isn't this just something for Jews? No. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, God established the Sabbath as a creation ordinance for all mankind. This is why it's been a moral principle all down through history. And as another, by the way, uh, before the fall, Adam and Eve... Uh, actually began their week with Sabbath observance. They rested on God's seventh day. So God ends the week with the Sabbath. Adam and Eve's first evening morning sequence, they didn't experience any evening or morning prior to that, evening morning sequence was God's Sabbath day. Why? Because God wants them to begin by resting in God's finished work of redemption, listening to him for instructions, then going out and taking dominion. But when they rebelled against God, Everything changed. And he put the Sabbath at the end. Still a blessing, but there's also some curse involved. But it's looking forward to the coming Messiah who would do better. He's the second Adam who would do better. And so it was put at the end of the week because the Messiah would come at the end of the Old Covenant. And I mentioned that the Sabbath is also a ceremonial law. It is called a sign in the law and is called an everlasting sign of the everlasting covenant in Ezekiel 20. A sign is an aspect of ceremonial law, and people say, well, why would they put anything ceremonial into the Ten Commandments, isn't that the essence of that just moral law? Well the reason there's a sign in the Ten Commandments is that the Ten Commandments are called a mini-covenant, and you don't have a covenant unless there's a sign of the covenant in there, and so there's a sign dimension put right into the heart of that mini-covenant, uh, the Ten Commandments. So if the Sabbath is a sign, it means it has at least some ceremonial dimensions, and those dimensions can change. Moral principles can never change, but those can, and this whole sermon is going to be looking at the changes to the Sabbath that God's law authorized. Now what do signs do? I probably should have put a different sign into your outlines, because I've got Two signs going, but this is the same sign that swings around. In the Old Testament, the sign was pointing this direction. You know signs point where you're supposed to go? Is that Lincoln over that way? So you might have a sign that's pointing, Lincoln. Well, Hebrews tells us that the Sabbath was a sign pointing to Jesus. In the Old Testament, because Jesus had not yet come, the signs at the end of the week to point forward to the fact that at the end of the Old Covenant, Jesus will come. Now that Jesus has come, the same sign points around back to Jesus, who comes where? At the beginning of the new covenant. So that's the transition marker that the sign is pointing to. Um, now, the second key concept in your outline says, while there must be a change of every ceremonial law, Hebrews 7:12), there could be no change to the moral law. And I give some verses to show that. For example, I already mentioned that the Passover was a ceremonial law that changed into the Lord's table. So in 1 Corinthians, he calls this our Passover. The heart of it has continued on, but there was a change in the sign. Circumcision was changed into into baptism. The food laws changed three times. Food laws are not moral laws, they are ceremonial laws. And even though the Sabbath has moral principles that will never change, it has ceremonial laws. Now, before I get to that change, let me prove this point. Speaking of the ceremonial law, Hebrews 7, 12 says, the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. In other words, when Christ came, now that the priesthood had changed, there has to be a change of temple, of priest, of sacrifices, all of the old covenant things had to change. And it's interesting, he doesn't say abrogate. He doesn't say throw out. It's a change of the ceremonial law. We live in the times of fulfillment, they were living in the times looking forward. So Hebrews 7:12 says, the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. Now, in contrast to that principle, I've given another set of verses in your outlines that say that the moral law cannot change in any detail, not the slightest detail. For example, Psalm 119, 160 every one of your righteous judgments endures forever, and I give several other verses that indicate it, they cannot change like Jesus said till heaven and earth passes away not one jot or one tittle of the law will pass away until all is fulfilled and whoever teaches people it's passed away he's going to be least in the kingdom of heaven least of the commandments that he refers to that's Deuteronomy 22:6 6 through 7 so there are a lot of verses that indicate not the smallest stroke of the pen can pass away from God's moral law until history is ended. And this distinction between moral and ceremonial is upheld throughout the scripture. Food laws, for example, were ceremonial laws intended to teach Israel how to be separate, separate from the world, separate from sin. But food laws changed three times. Before Noah, they were not allowed to eat meat at all. They were vegetarian. After Noah, uh, Genesis chapter nine verse three says, "Hey, you can eat anything, including pork. But once Moses came along, God says, "No, I'm going to use change this ceremonial law and you can no longer eat unclean foods, uh, pork and things like that. And then in the New Testament period, God relaxed those food laws once again. There still are food laws today, for example, in Acts uh, 1529 it says uh, you can't ever eat any blood. So there's still food laws, but the food laws have changed, okay? So that's just to illustrate this distinction between moral and ceremonial law. Okay, back to the Sabbath. What part of the Sabbath is ceremonial and what part of the Sabbath is moral? What part changes? What part does not change? Hebrews 4.9 says that there still remains a Sabbath-keeping, as the literal rendering there, a Sabbath-keeping for the people of God. Sabbath-keeping itself has not been done away with. Now, here's how I explain it. Just imagine a tall pole on which is a sign that gives people directions as to where to find Jesus. The sign is still on that pole, Okay. It's uh, the pole of God's kingdom, but rather than pointing forward to the coming Messiah by being at the end of the week, it swung around, it points to Messiah who began the age by rising on the first day of the week. And I believe that the only change that was made to the Sabbath was on the day. How you practice it was the same before the fall, after the fall, and after uh, the resurrection. So the the day change, that's a ceremonial part. And I think 1 Corinthians 16, 2, if you turn back there, um, shows that moral aspect of the Sabbath uh, continuing. And let me show you three things in this text that indicate that this is a command. This is a moral law. In verse 1, Paul says, "...as I have given orders." Now we'll see in a moment that Paul's orders coincide with the law and with the prophet's. But, uh, and so even though he can prove, okay, this is, this is something I'm commanding that's consistent with the Old Testament, I just want you to notice right here, this is not optional. He says, I'm giving orders on this. You, you have to do this on the first day of the week. It's a clearly a new covenant uh, day keeping that's in the realm of ethics. And in case you didn't catch the point with the word orders, Paul adds the words, you must do. There is a must uh, to this new covenant daykeeping. Now, Colossians 2 is the opposite. Colossians 2 says you must not be engaged in that daykeeping, and here he's saying you must be engaged in this particular daykeeping, and it's only one day. As Paul had given orders to the Galatian churches, so too Corinth must do. It's a church-wide mandate. Third, the Greek of verse 2 is in the imperative mood. Now, In the Greek grammar, uh, the imperative mood, that's the the mood of commands. So he's giving a command when he says this, On the first day Sabbath, let each of you lay something aside. In the Old Testament, the offerings were collected on the seventh day. But now that's not an option. In the Old Testament times, they worshipped on, they gathered together as a church, they fellowshiped together as a church on the seventh day. That is no longer an option. He says you've got to do it on the uh, first day of the week. So there must be something of major significance for Paul to make that mandate, and we'll look at those reasons in a minute. But I just wanted you to see this very, very clearly. Three reasons in these two verses that first-day Sabbath-keeping is a moral law that we are all bound to obey. This means that Seventh-day Adventists, This means that Seventh-day Messianic congregations are in sin. They are in direct violation of the orders of Almighty God to, first of all, avoid Colossians 2 mandating a seventh day and to obey this order for first-day Sabbath celebration. But since all ethics is rooted in the Pentateuch, Paul could not be giving this command unless he could find it in the Old Testament, and he could. In Acts 26, verse 22, Paul said, To this day I stand, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said should come. Okay, so that means there's got to be something in the law of Moses and something in the scriptures of the prophets that says no longer in the new covenant are you going to be able to follow the seventh-day Sabbath. There's going to be a change, and after the Messiah, to revert to a seventh-day Sabbath is a sin. So that's a tall order to prove that from the Old Testament. But do you see the logic of where I'm going? Acts 26.22 says that Paul based 100% of his teaching on the Old Testament, and even the new things he was teaching were able to be rooted in the Old Testament. This is why he praises the Bereans in Acts 17 for checking out absolutely everything he taught from the Old Testament Scriptures. That would be a pointless exercise if Paul was only a New Testament believer and he didn't follow the Old Testament, a pointless exercise, but no, he praises them as being good in checking out all of his doctrine against the Old Testament. So that's what I'm going to do right now. Uh, We're going to check Paul's (laughs) theology of 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. And there's a lot more we could say. I'm going to skip over a lot of the Old Testament anticipation of this. For example, uh, Adam and Eve's first day Sabbath and how that got changed, but I want you to turn with me to Leviticus 23, and uh, what I want to show is how the festivals of Israel were ceremonial prophecies of the coming of Christ, the end of the Old Covenant, the beginning of the New Covenant, and the change of the day of the Sabbath. Taken together, these seven festivals clearly prophesied a change from the seventh day to the first day Sabbath that would have been mandated as part of the law of God. Uh, And by the way, they actually celebrated both the seventh day and the first day Sabbath. And the reason God had them celebrate those every year was He wanted them constantly being reminded, you're not at the final stage of the kingdom. You've got to look forward to the Messiah. And once the Messiah comes, this is when all of these changes will happen. This is when the day uh, will be perpetually on the first day. Okay, if you look at Leviticus 23, the first festival is the weekly Sabbath. Now, I love the fact that the weekly Sabbath is placed right at the beginning. It's the most important of the Sabbaths, and the reason I love it is because there's so much legalism out there where people rob the day of its joy, but it's supposed to be a festival day. It's supposed to be a day of feasting. It's supposed to be a great, uh, fun day, but... It was also one of the perpetual reminders that the Messiah is off in the future. He's going to be coming in the future at the end of the Old Covenant. The next festival is Passover, and actually Passover and Unleavened Bread are grouped together, and those two pointed to the death and the burial of Jesus. They happened on exactly those days. Uh, First day of the feast and the seventh day of the feast are both called Sabbaths. So there's both a significance to the first and the seventh because there's going to be an ending of the Old Covenant, but there's also a beginning of the New Covenant that happened at the same moment, at the moment, same moment. So both first and seventh day, Sabbath, are mentioned there. Then first fruits was a day in which people symbolically cut down sheaves of green barley, symbolically carried it to the tabernacle. This is verses 9 through 14. They symbolically threshed it. In other words, this was a work day this was not a Sabbath day. And it symbolized the fact that Jesus in the future would have a finished work of redemption when he rose from the grave. There would be nothing more uh, for us to do. So I want you to keep that fact in mind that this was a work day because when we get to the New Testament, which consistently calls the day that Jesus rose from the grave a Sabbath, That would have made the Jews scratch their heads and think, oh, yeah, based on these Levitical uh, prophecies, that makes sense. But it had never been a Sabbath before. This is something brand new that God is going to create, and there are other scriptures that anticipated that uh, he would do that. So a very clear-cut change. Now, the first redemptive historical event after Christ's resurrection was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. If you look at verses 15 through 22, you'll see the festival of Pentecost. And there are two things I think that are significant about that festival. The first is that Pentecost is structured like a mini-Jubilee. It didn't point to the death of Jesus. Keep in mind, all of these festivals have a historical sequence. This is not pointing to the death of Jesus. This is pointing to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And the reason I call it a mini-Jubilee is that Pentecost occurred exactly 50 days after that that last Sabbath. So you count seven Sabbaths, that's 49 days, and then the 50th day is a Sunday, and that celebrates the liberty of the new kingdom. And of that Sunday, uh, Leviticus 23, verse 21 says this, And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you, you shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. That is a description of the new covenant Sabbath. Whenever Jews celebrated Pentecost, they're celebrating, what, a Sunday Sabbath. Why? Because the festival anticipated Christ's resurrection has already happened. Festival of Firstfruits, that's already happened. After the festival of first fruits, there are no seventh-day Sabbaths. That's the key thing I'm gonna keep pointing to. Let's move on to trumpets. From 8030, when Pentecost occurred, until 8070, there was a 40-year transition period when Old Covenant and New Covenant operated side by side. And you can see in your bulletins at the top, kind of a diagram of those two things. So they didn't end smack dab at the beginning there's a tapering off of the old covenant until the temple is destroyed that's the biggest symbol of the old covenant but the priesthood all of the old covenant ceremonies are, are are destroyed at AD 70 so hebrews says that the old covenant is growing old and ready to vanish away it was about to vanish away in AD 66 you know soon uh, to be destroyed so we have seen in our studies of the festivals, especially during the Revelation uh, series, that the next two festivals prophesy the end of Israel and the end of the temple. And we saw that God providentially lined up the days of these festivals with the historical events uh, of that. Uh, for example, the Festival of Trumpets landed on the day that Rome's armies invaded Israel and, and that's why it's called Trumpets in, uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, it was the seventh month to symbolize the end of time for Israel, but there is no seventh-day Sabbath. Okay? The Sabbath lands on the first day of the month, pointing to the newness of the new covenant, forever replacing the old, but there's no seventh-day Sabbath. That's the key thing to remember. Uh, in fact, it would have spoiled the symbolism because Israel had rejected their Messiah to give them any Sabbath rest, would have said that you can reject the Messiah and still be having rest. No, there is no rest for those who reject their Lord. Day of Atonement, which was actually a fast, it was a day of mourning, pointed prophetically to the very day that the temple was destroyed so that no sacrifices could compete with Christ's atonement. And it was a tenth day of the month a sabbath day and 10 again the symbol of completion but again no seventh day sabbath because there's no longer any provisional rest for those who reject christ's atonement now the last festival was tabernacles it's the only festival that pointed to ongoing history after ad 70 in other words after the old covenant people and temple of priests and sacrifice all of those things were done away with and over and over the Old Testament uses tabernacles to portray the New Covenant times when the Gentiles are going to come to Christ. That's one of the reasons why Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29 say that there were 70 bulls that would be slain on tabernacles. It was for each of the 70 nations listed in Genesis. In other words, this is where the gospel goes to the ends of the earth and the the Jews lived in tabernacles, little huts made out out of branches, to symbolize the fact that if they ever violated the Covenant of the Future, they would be scattered amongst the Gentiles. Well, that's exactly uh, what happened at that point. Now, more to the point, the only Sabbaths on the Festival of Tabernacles were the first and eighth day Sabbaths. First-day Sabbath emphasized the newness of the new creation Jesus is bringing in. The eighth-day Sabbath emphasizes the end of the New Covenant age, still future to us, Well, what's a first day and and an eighth-day Sabbath? It's Sunday Sabbath, right? Uh, And so there's a symbolism there of the beginning and of the the ending. The Hebrew of verse 39 is literally, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. So there's a cycle of seven days. But rather than saying there's going to be a first and a seventh-day Sabbath, as you would expect, it says, on the first-day Sabbath and on the eighth-day Sabbath now in the New King James you'll see a whole bunch of italicized words that's because there's no Hebrew for that and it shouldn't be in the English either literally it is the first day Sabbath and the eighth day Sabbath so the festivals show that as you move through history the only Sabbath that will be celebrated in the New Covenant times is a Sunday Sabbath and the Hebrew of verse 39 again you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days and um... and I lost my place there, but anyway, I think you get the point. What all of these festivals are showing, everything leading up to Christ's death and resurrection, uh, would be foreshadowed by a Sabbath at the end of the week. Why? Because Jesus was still to come at the end of the Old Covenant. Everything after Christ's death and resurrection, in other words, after first fruits, has a eighth or a first day Sabbath the beginning of the week because God wanted the Jews to realize future covenant people would look back at Christ's work that would be finished at the beginning of the kingdom. And because it's a moral law, he made people celebrate the Sunday Sabbath in the Old Testament. He wanted it included in the moral law of God so that they would always be reminded, we have to wait for the Messiah for this to be changed. Now, what was, uh, by the way, they, they celebrated both, but only... The first day sabbath continues into the new covenant that's what colossians is all about now what was true of the weeks of the days is also true of the weeks of years in the old covenant every seventh year was a sabbath year where you let the land lie rest you didn't farm it Uh, there had to be given a rest and then after seven sabbath cycles seven times seven is 49 after 49 years there was that 49th year was a Sabbath, and then there was a 50th year that was a Sabbath. So you have back-to-back Sabbaths, and what that's showing is that leading up to Christ, who is the Jubilee, it's always going to be at the end. Why? Because he's still coming at the end of the Old Covenant. After Christ has come, it's the 50th. It's a Sunday year, so to speak. It's a Jubilee year, and Jesus declared himself in Luke four nineteen to be the Jubilee fulfillment. So Paul's Sunday Sabbath is indeed rooted in the law of Moses, but you also find hints of it in the prophets. I've already mentioned how Isaiah 56, 1 through 8 prophesies a time in the new covenant after the ceremonial laws have changed, when the Sabbath will be kept by eunuchs and by Gentiles much better than the Israelites kept it. And that's something you ought to keep in mind. Do you keep the Sunday Sabbath better than the Jews kept their Sabbath? We really should, because that's what Isaiah 56 says is going to happen in the New Covenant. But Isaiah 65 through 66 says that this Sabbath is part of the all things that Jesus makes new. It says that what flows out of Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection is a whole bunch of new things. So Isaiah speaks of new blessings, a new Jerusalem, a new people, a new universal peace, new worship, even new church government. You might say, well, what about church government? There is continuity from the Old Testament to the New, but now instead of Levites being the pastors, he says, I'm going to take Gentiles to be your Levites, in other words, to be your pastors of your local congregations. So there's continuity, but there's a newness to it as well. Anyway, I'll leave you to study some of those passages on your own, but part of the newness in that passage is the Sabbath. He's going to have the Gentiles... Uh, celebrate that new Sabbath until the last day of history, which is the last verse of Isaiah. And I'll skip over that because I dealt with it earlier. I I just want to give one more Old Testament passage. Psalm 118. It identifies this new Sabbath day as the day that the Lord has made. Uh, One commentator uh, pointed out that this could be rendered. This is the day that the Lord has sanctified. And several commentaries have pointed out that the language here is identical to the language to set apart the Sabbath days on the Feast of Tabernacle. I think that's very, very significant. We don't have time to develop it. Uh, But what is especially important is that that verse is describing the day Jesus rose from the grave. When Jesus would rise from the dead, God would set apart that day for his people to rejoice in. So the first part of verse 22 refers to Christ's resurrection and crucifixion on Passover. Second part of verse 22 refers to the resurrection of Jesus. So it says the stone that the builders rejected, how did they reject him? They crucified him, right? Is now vindicated by God as the chief cornerstone. That's a reference according to the New Testament to the resurrection. And both the chief cornerstone reference and the next phrase, we will rejoice and be glad in it, are used in Isaiah's chapter to refer to the new creation of Jesus. And so again, commentators point out the new creation is tied in with the Sunday Sabbath. And I don't have time to develop that theology. But in light of these facts, several ancient and modern commentators have taken this verse to be a reference to God setting apart a brand new day that had never before been a Sabbath day. First fruits had never been a Sabbath day, but he's going to make it a Sabbath day. There are other eighth day and first day Sabbaths, but not first fruits. But he was going to now set it apart and be a Sabbath. And I especially love the devotional remarks of Matthew Henry and how this calls us to take great delight in the privileges we have that are shadowed by this new covenant Sabbath and uh, express our devotion to him. Barnes points out that this verse clearly makes the new covenant Sabbath to be a perpetual reminder of Christ's resurrection. And I think that seems to fit Peter's exposition of this psalm in Acts 4. So we've seen that both Moses and the prophets prophesied that in the new covenant, It's going to be a change in the day that the Sabbath would be celebrated on and that this change would pivot on Christ's death and resurrection. So it's no wonder to me that Paul can say with absolute certainty and sincerity, to this day I stand saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said should come. Moses and the prophets anticipated the mandate of this day and Paul teaches the mandate in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. Now, if you turn with me to Matthew 28, I'll just give you a couple of examples of how the Gospels specifically call this day a Sabbath. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see this tomb. Now, in the New King James, which I just read from, you don't see the Sabbath but one time, but there's actually two occurrences of exactly the same word in the Greek and in a lot of older versions. So let me read it again, translating it literally. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day Sabbath began to dawn. So there's one Sabbath that has passed away. There's now a new Sabbath, a first day Sabbath, that is beginning to dawn in God's program. And Jesus rose on that second Sabbath. Now turn to Mark uh, chapter 16. I'm going to read three verses on this. Mark chapter 16 and verse 1. This verse literally says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day Sabbath, they came to the tomb. And then take a look down there at verse 9, where the word Sabbath occurs one more time. Now, when he rose early on the first day Sabbath, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Now, one scholar by the name of um, Parker commented on these three verses saying this. In these words, the evangelist says that the Jewish Sabbath was passed, and he uses the verb diaginemi in the second era, signifying that the action was complete. The preposition dia in composition gives intensity to the verb to show that the transition of time was entirely finished through to the very end, that the Jewish Sabbath had transpired before the Sabbath commenced, which is mentioned in the second verse. In Mark 69, the evangelist tells us Jesus rose very early on the first day of the week. Anastas de proi prote sabbatu, which gives us divine authority for observing the Sabbath on Sunday, the first day of the week. And all of the other Gospels, both of the other Gospels, I should say, and um, the Book of Acts, you see similar wording. So one Sabbath had definitively passed away with the Old Covenant, never to be observed again. And a brand new Sabbath, they emerged. It was a day that God had to create. Because as I mentioned, First Fruits was never a Sabbath before. These Gospels, therefore, are not speaking of an Old Covenant Sabbath. They're speaking of something God created, ex nihilo, so that the sign of the old creation could give way to the sign of the new creation on the first day of the week. I'm not going to go over more of the theology. I've got a booklet in the back uh, that gets into this psalm, and actually Ray uh, Simmons has um, uh, a summary paper as well that you might ask him for if you want to study it in a little bit more detail. But I do want to end with three applications. The first is that Sunday is now what Revelation 1.10 calls the Lord's Day. It belongs to the Lord. It does not belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. And you need to look to God's law for how you uh, keep his Sabbath. Now, in my opinion, some of you break God's Sabbath on a regular basis. Uh, I, I, you, you treat it as if it is your day to do with as you please. But this is God's day. Revelation 1.10 calls it the Lord's day. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said that he is Lord of the Sabbath. So you need to ask the Lord how he wants his day to be kept, rather than just coming up with your own ideas in the abstract. So that's my first application. You must look to God's law for the way to keep the moral dimensions of His Sabbath, why? It's his day, and if you want some guidance, you could start by reading the New Covenant Sabbath passage in Isaiah 56. Second, Psalm 118.24 calls us to rejoice and to be glad in this day. Don't buck against it, rejoice in it. After all that Jesus has done for us, the least we could do is say, Lord, I gladly give you one day. You've been so generous, give me six. I gladly give you this day, I want to rejoice in it. And sometimes we have to learn how to rejoice, learn how to be glad in this day. The Pharisees had added all kinds of man-made rules and they totally robbed the day of any joy. You know, you couldn't even eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath according to them because that chicken labored for it. I mean, they added all kinds of legalistic rules to the scripture, and God says, no, he swept that all aside. In fact, Christ illustrates how to keep the Sabbath. And um, in my opinion, the Puritans actually took some of the joy out of the day by insisting that the entire day has to be either public worship or private worship, nothing else unless it's an emergency. I say, no, Jesus engaged in much more than public or private worship. That's an important part of Sabbath keeping, but he engaged in feasting. Uh, It was supposed to be a feast day. In fact, as I mentioned before, it's the first and the highest of all of the feasts in Leviticus 23. It was intended to be joyful and fun. In fact, in in Nehemiah, I think it's chapter 8 or chapter 9, you'll have to look it up, They're on the Sabbath, and they're mourning. And he says, no, don't mourn. That's so inappropriate for this day. Go eat the fat, drink the sweet, give portions to those who do not have any. This is to be a day of celebration, of blessing, of feasting, and joy. It's God's pledge of victory to us. It is his pledge that he is making all things new. And it's his time to meet with us in a special way. By the way, Genesis 2 says, God blessed the day. That was even before the fall. He blessed it. It should be a blessing. So we have every reason to say, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, the last application is that this was the day for giving to God. And 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2, highlights that facet of the Sabbath, giving money to the Lord through our offerings. Now, if the previous application shows the joy that God has in giving us blessings on this day, This shows the joy we can have in giving God blessings on this day. Now, God doesn't need anything, but it's so cool that he finds joy in receiving our offerings that we put into the basket at the back. He finds joy when we offer to him our songs and our prayers, and when we dress up, you know, say, Lord, this is my gift to you. I'm honoring you. When we sacrifice time for uh, the... Um, prayers and the, the, the readings that we do on this day. We are giving to the Lord. We give him hospitality. And so the three applications are keep the Sabbath, rejoice in the Sabbath by avoiding legalism and uh, looking to please God, not man. This is not about, you know, you shouldn't even ask Phil Kaiser, well, can I do this? Can I do the other thing? Just go to God's law and ask the Lord, how, how can I prioritize your day? This is yours anyway. So Rejoice, and then third, use this opportunity to give God your time, devotion, worship, money, and blessing. So keep, rejoice, and give, and may God bless you as you do so. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the incredible gift of the Sabbath. It is a gift that refreshes our body, refreshes our soul. It has so many blessings that come with it, but we also want to bless you. We want this day to be a gift that we can give to you. And so I pray that as uh, you hear the hearts of your people, uh, whether it's confessions or whether it's uh, a glad recommitment to the Sabbath, that uh, you would be pleased with that which we offer up to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.